All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Before we jump into the content on this session, let me just mention, if you have not heard me say it before, that there is a free ebook on my website that will help you dig in and study the Bible better, as well as help you put it into practice in your life better. It's called Bible and Life, and it gives five practices for hearing or understanding the Bible, and five practices for heeding or living out the Bible. Totally free. Just enter your name, your email address, and you'll have access to that free ebook. So that's right on the homepage of listenerscommentary.com. If that sounds helpful to you, swing over there and check that out. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. And in chapters 8 and 9 of the Gospel of Matthew, what Matthew is doing is he's putting together this collage of stories in order to demonstrate or show Jesus' authority. So we got three stories right out of the gate in chapter 8, and then there was a message about discipleship. And then we got three more stories in the rest of chapter 8 and in the first part of chapter 9. And then we get to this section here where there's some more lessons about Jesus' ministry and Jesus' mission. And this is the way Matthew has put together chapters 8 and 9, flowing out of the Sermon on the Mount, where people were amazed at his authority. Uh, what Matthew is doing is helping us see the nature of that authority as it plays out both in his ministry as well as in his call to discipleship. And so here we get this little section, which has some more lessons about Jesus's ministry and mission. There are actually two scenes in this short little section, verses 9 through 17. And in both scenes, Jesus responds to a question. And his responses tell us something about how he understood the mission of his life and his ministry. And so we pick up in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, where it says, And Jesus went on from there. And if you recall in the last scene, Jesus is in Capernaum, and he's teaching somewhere in town in some house, and a paralyzed man is brought to him, and he heals him, and the crowds are amazed at his authority. So we can assume when it says Jesus went on from there, meaning he went on from wherever that event happened, this healing of the paralyzed man, somewhere in Capernaum. And so he's probably still in or around or near Capernaum when this happens. We'll have more details on that here in just a second. So Jesus went on from there and he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's office. Now, remember, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew. So we're reading Matthew's own account of this. And before becoming a follower of Jesus, Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors worked for the Romans. They were their employees. And that means they worked for the occupying forces. So Matthew is a Jew working for the Romans who were occupying Israel. And that fact alone made him vile and detestable in the eyes of faithful Jews of the day. Uh, not only that, but the way tax collection worked for the Romans is the Romans had sort of a certain set amount and the tax collector would collect that amount, but they would bump up the price, uh, whatever they thought they could get, and that extra became their income. And that's how it worked. So he's working for the Romans, and then he's charging his people more. And we learn from uh, other Gospels that Matthew's quite wealthy, and so he's been charging a lot more, and he's made a killing off of it. All of that made tax collectors very disliked and very detestable 
in the first century uh, Jewish environment. So here comes Jesus, and he sees Matthew sitting at his text collector's office, and he called to him and said to him, follow me. And he, that is Matthew, got up and followed him. So Jesus has been doing ministry in town, in Capernaum, and from his post, Matthew had heard rumors about Jesus. Maybe he'd heard and seen Jesus. Maybe it snuck out to watch Jesus. We don't know what kind of interaction Matthew and Jesus have had previously, but Jesus knows that Matthew would make a good disciple, and so he calls him intentionally, come, follow me. And Matthew does. He leaves behind his tax collector's booth and he follows Jesus. Verse 10 continues and says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and began dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, it's not totally clear here. Matthew has left it a little bit vague, maybe out of modesty, who knows. But in the other Gospels, it's clear that what is talked about in verse 10 and following occurs in Matthew's house. In fact, Luke tells us that Matthew gave a big reception in Jesus' honor when Jesus called him to follow him. And so these tax collectors and sinners that are mentioned here in verse 10, well, they're people from Matthew's social circles. And they represent the underbelly of society. Like you have the tax collectors, all those people maybe who worked for Matthew. They were, you know, ones that carried out his commands because he's like a chief tax collector. Other people that maybe he knew, sinners from the low lives of society. That's who we're talking about. And Matthew throws this big party, invites all his friends who happen to be from the bad part of town and the underbelly of society. Jesus goes to dinner at his house. And this leads to the first question that Jesus is going to answer in this section. And so verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, when they saw that he was eating at Matthew's house with all these friends and colleagues of Matthew, when they saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, maybe they pulled a couple aside and they asked this question, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, notice again, who, who asks this? It's the Pharisees. And that makes sense. The Pharisees were part of a Jewish purity movement. That was who they were. And their aim actually was to preserve in their own life the same degree of purity required of the priests in the temple. They tried to preserve that in who they ate with and how they ate and how uh, they richly washed before they ate. That was just part of their traditions and part of their goal to be pure and holy. If it's good enough for the priest serving in the temple, it's good enough for us. And that was the way the Pharisees thought. And so who you ate with and how you ate was actually a central social convention that communicated all sorts of messages. And here, Jesus is clearly doing it wrong. He claims to be a righteous man. He claims to teach the way of God. And yet he's eating with the unrighteous, with these lowlifes from the wrong part of town. And not only were the tax collectors viewed as corrupt traitors, they were considered ritually unclean because of their constant contact with the Gentiles. And so for the Pharisees, this just raises all sorts of questions about, why, well, why would Jesus do that? Like, like, who does he think he is? Who does he think God is? What does he think purity is? This just doesn't make any sense. And that's why they asked this question. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus has a response for that. So look at verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. 
like Jesus doesn't deny that these uh, tax collectors and sinners need help. He doesn't deny that they need to change. He doesn't deny that in the imagery of the metaphor he uses, they're sick. He admits they need a doctor, and he believes he is that doctor, and so he eats with them. That's why he eats with them, because they do need help. And then Jesus actually sends the Pharisees away to do a little Bible study. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, now go and learn what this means. Like go and learn and then quoting a Bible passage, which is what he's going to do, means go and study and then ponder this and discuss this together. Figure out what this actually means. And what Jesus does is he quotes from Hosea chapter 6, he's, where it says, I desire compassion rather than sacrifice. This is from Hosea 6.6. And in, in its original setting, the nation of Israel is being called to account for having ritually correct worship, and yet at the same time being very unfaithful to God. And the aim of this passage in its original context uh, was for the nation of Israel to repent and return and seek the Lord. And so I desire compassion rather than sacrifice recalls that whole context in this moment. And when it says rather than, it doesn't mean like no sacrifice, uh, get rid of sacrifice. Literally, it says I desire compassion and not sacrifice. But it's a Hebrew style of expression that, that means compassion and mercy are a higher priority than sacrifice. That's the force of it in Hosea in its original setting. And so applying this passage to Eating with sinners and tax collectors means that what Jesus believes is mercy towards those in need and mercy towards those who need God's restoration. Well, that takes priority over ritual purity. That's the idea. And that's how Jesus understands what he's doing. So why does he eat with uh, tax collectors and sinners? Well, because they need help and helping them is more important than ritual purity. And Jesus gives the reason for that in the second half of verse 13. He says, For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners are the ones who need a doctor. So Jesus is prioritizing moving towards uh, sinners and tax collectors in mercy and in compassion over ritual purity. And he's doing that so that they can actually find wholeness and health. And this tells us a ton about Jesus' ministry and mission. His aim was to call sinners to return to God. And he didn't do that from a distance. He didn't do that from afar. He didn't do that with a megaphone. He did it around a table by eating with them and building rapport with them and getting to know them and drawing them to himself. All right, so that's scene one here in this section. Then Matthew jumps to a second scene that gives another insight into how Jesus understood his ministry and his mission. Look at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So again, notice who's asking the question. These are the disciples of John. That is John the Baptist. Some of those who have been following John the Baptist. So they're, these are more like sympathetic to Jesus. And they're trying to understand, like, we fast, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast. And pious Jews of the day fasted twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. Interestingly, the Old Testament actually only prescribed fasting one day a year on the Day of Atonement, but faithful Jews practiced it more often than that. 
And we know Jesus fasted. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4. I mean, he fasted for 40 days. So he's actually pretty good at fasting. And Jesus assumed that his followers would fast, Matthew chapter 6. When he says, when you fast, he just assumes that. But during Jesus' ministry, he's always going to dinner parties. And it sure seems like, therefore, he's not much for fasting. And so they come and they want to know, well, wait a second. Why are you guys always partying and not fasting, even though we're fasting, Pharisees fast? It doesn't seem like that's a very righteous or pure thing to do. And Jesus answers their question with an analogy from a wedding. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, the attendants of the groom, what we would call in my culture, the groomsmen, the attendants of the groom can't mourn as long as the groom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Weddings in Jesus' day and culture were typically celebrated with a seven-day feast. So you had a massive feast that was part of the whole wedding celebration. Would it actually be appropriate for the guests and even those closest to the bride and the groom, would it be appropriate for them to fast and not enjoy the celebration? Certainly not. The whole point of the wedding is to celebrate the bringing together of this couple. And likewise, Jesus then is basically implying by this analogy that he's like a groom, a groom coming to be with his people. Uh, and that image probably reflects the Old Testament uh, usage where Yahweh himself is Israel's groom. And Jesus is really comparing himself to that. And as such, as the groom, he's inviting people into the day of salvation. That's a time of feasting and not a time of fasting. Now, when he's taken away, he says, when he leaves, well, then fasting will be appropriate. But right now, it's like a wedding feast, and it's a day of salvation, so let's party and let's feast. When he says that there'll be fasting that'll come about when he's taken away, I think that actually kind of implies a new focus, even, to fasting in uh, the messianic age. Like, there was fasting that the Jews did in their time period, but now that Messiah has come, Part of the purpose of our fasting is to, this longing for our groom, our king, to return. He's been taken away, and we want him to come, to come back and you know, throw a new wedding feast, as the image is in the book of Revelation. So the days of Jesus' ministry, Jesus says, are days of feasting, not fasting. And then Jesus uses two illustrations to further explain this. The first one shows up in verse 16. He says, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You can get the picture. You have an old garment that's already shrunk down, and then you take a brand new piece of cloth that hasn't shrunk at all. You put it on the old garment, sew it on there to try to patch the hole. What's going to happen? Well, Jesus points it out in the second half of verse 16, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. When that cloth that's been used that hasn't shrunk starts to shrink, it's not going to be enough to cover the hole. It's going to make uh, the hole, the tear worse in the garment. Then he says in verse 17, nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. This was, again, a familiar thing in their culture. You would have this bag of leather, a skin from an animal that you would prepare and get all set. And then you would make wine and you would put fresh wine inside of that and then you would seal it. Well, as you did that, the gases from the wine as it fermented and created the wine would cause that bag to stretch and expand. So if you already have a stretched and expanded bag, and then you take uh, some brand new wine and put it in there with new gases, now what's going to happen? 
Well, Jesus explains, otherwise the wineskin burst. As that new wine begins to stretch the bag even more, uh, eventually the bag can't handle it and the wineskin burst, the wine pours out, and the wineskin are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. Now, what's the point of these two illustrations about the unshrunk cloth and the wineskins? Well, the point is that Jesus is bringing into the world a new reality. The the kingdom of heaven is, is now coming in Jesus. He's bringing a new reality into the world, and it just can't be added directly into the forms of the old reality. His kingdom is like an entirely new garment, or it's like an entirely new wine. And the old and the new will inevitably clash with each other and not mix well, thus thus the need for new wineskins. That is, new forms or new expressions are needed. What are the new and the old here in this context? Well, it's really important, I think, to think clearly about that. It's not Christianity or Judaism per se. I mean, the apostles themselves were Jews, and they continued to live as Jews in a number of ways after their faith in Jesus. And so it's not just Judaism versus Christianity. It's uh, the kingdom of God as being brought in Jesus versus the old form of really the law, the Torah. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that we've arrived in Messiah, we've arrived at the end of Torah as the covenant. We've reached the culmination of what the law intended to do, and what the law was given for. We've reached that end point, and we've entered into a new stage uh, where now God's people are shaped by and marked by Messiah, not the Torah, not the law. And so... In Jesus, the law achieves its purpose and its goal. It brings God's kingdom into reality, and it's time for new expressions, new forms, new ways of thinking. That's what uh, Jesus is getting at with these illustrations. And so as we think about that, what that means for us really is, is that the arrival of the kingdom in the person of Jesus, that's going to alter social and religious realities. One of the ways we see it playing out in this story is mercy taking priority over ritual purity, uh, or new forms of religious expression will come. And so here specifically, that form is fasting. Well, the, the nature of fasting is going to be different. Fasting now focused on the king who has been taken away, and we long for him to return and for his kingdom to come in fullness, and we want to see that. And so what we see in Jesus is the arrival of a brand new reality, the kingdom of heaven breaking into the here and now, and it's going to change the way we relate to God and the way we interact with others. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that only exists because people have been generous to this ministry. So thanks a ton for your support in making this possible. God is bearing good fruit through your generosity. And if you've been impacted in some way by this ministry, would you prayerfully consider uh, joining the team of supporters? And you can do that by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com and either signing up for the Study Hub or clicking the Give button and setting up a one-time or monthly recurring donation. If you go through the Give button, it'll take you to a page through World Family Mission, um, a registered nonprofit, and you can set up your donation through there as well. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it.